Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box with a twist. Each month, you will receive a new paranormal soft style tea and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password that can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another episode of Cryptique. We're coming at you from the Loading Bar Studios in ice-cold St. Louis, Missouri. I'm joined, as always, by a man who has agreed to take the Beef Stew Beer Bong Challenge live on the air tonight. <laughs> okay. I got a big heaping bowl of beef stew for you to down. What do you think about that with your jalapeno issues acting up right now i mean that'd probably be pretty refreshing actually <laughs> something that's not going to be hot all the way through pray you don't get the onion <laughs> i um uh, speaking of weird things i i've been telling everybody i've talked to about this one of the beer salesmen that comes here to the bar we were just talking about stuff that I had on tap and like the way, you know, we have some stuff that people mix. We have a beer called Fruly that's like a very sweet, kind of thick, uh, like strawberry Hefeweizen kind of beer. Okay. And people mix it with Blue Moon. They call it like a strawberry moon. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You can mix like Guinness with things, whatever. Mm -hmm. But this guy was like, oh, you know what I had over the weekend that I thought sounded gross. He's like, you take a shot of Amaretto. Mm-hmm and then put beer on top of that whatever kind of beer you want and then top it with orange juice mm. i was like that sounds fucking weird yeah and he was like it absolutely does i did not think it would be any good he was saying that they were doing them as like bombs you just drop the shot glass of amaretto in it and like chug it mm -hmm. he's like it's really smooth it's it's all right and so i tried it and it's fantastic hmm. yeah it's actually really good and then i was like okay it's good with blue moon i'll try it with stag because stag is stag is stag but I tried it with Stag and it was actually better because Stag has like, Stag has very little sugar in it. Mm -hmm. Like that's why it tastes the way it does. It's like, if you just wanted like the most generic, like I want a beer type of beer, like that's it. Hmm. Now, I don't think it would work with beef stew, but <laughs> I would be willing to try because I've been wrong before. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, tell them what they need to know. Uh, we would really appreciate it if you would follow us and share on Facebook and your favorite social medias. And also check out our Parabox sponsor. They have a mystery t-shirt box. They have a lot of actually very cool shirts. I've talked about it before. They have shirts with 
Yeti, Skinwalker, you know, all, all sorts, like any paranormal concept or legend you've heard of, they probably have some kind of really cool design to go with it. Yeah, almost every episode we've done has a t-shirt, so <laughs> haven't seen an incels one, though. No, <laughs> that's what I need, an incel t-shirt and just an arrow pointing up. <laughs> or down. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, check that out by clicking the link in the show notes. So, what are we talking about tonight? Tonight we are talking about... Alright, the Nazis and the occult. There are some truly bizarre theories out there about the Nazis, such as the idea that Hitler was possessed by a demon, or that the Nazi conquest of Europe was powered by the magical Spear of Destiny. That may be a more obscure one, but if you have ever seen the movie, the Constantine movie... Mm-hmm. Do you re- I'm assuming oh, you remember that movie. Oh yeah, I remember... Where he finds yeah. the spear wrapped in a Nazi flag. Yeah. That's that's an intense scene. If you haven't seen that, mm-hmm. just you know, watch it on YouTube. The movie's great, and obviously, I love Keanu Reeves, but uh, <laughs> but that scene is very powerful, and there's like a jump scare mixed in too. So it's it's pretty cool. It's so good. Everybody I've ever shown that movie to is like, what? How how did I miss this? Yeah. Like, why did nobody call me and tell me about this movie before? Anyway, so it's no wonder that they would have had an enduring obsession with the occult. But exactly how involved were the Nazis with the occult? Well, they claimed that they descended from Atlanteans. And before we throw this theory under the bus, we need to understand that history is basically agreed upon lies. So whether there's any, any credibility to them thinking that they were descended from, you know, the people that we don't even know where Atlantis was, is, if it existed or anything like that for sure. But before we throw that theory under the bus, history is agreed upon lies. And I will tell you something, if the Nazis won World War II, and some people think they did because they think Germany lost, but the Nazis won because now they're all over in NASA and, you know, the scientific world and whatever. Mm. If they won World War II, that would be history. That would be what they're taught in schools. So, I I mean, think about that for a second uh, and understand that perhaps the things that you were taught are not exactly what happened. Anyway, the political group that would eventually become the Nazi Party, which was originally the German Workers' Party, was founded in part by individuals from the Thule Society, Thule Society, I think it's I think it's just Thule. But they were an esoteric group dedicated to studying the mythological origins of the Aryan race. Several prominent Nazis were either members were active within the society, including your boy, Rudolf Hess. He would become the deputy Fuhrer to Hitler. Alfred Rosenberg, head of the ministry that oversaw Nazi Germany's occupied territories in Eastern Europe, and Dietrich Eckhart, who founded the German Workers' Party. The Thule Society's primary focus was on the study of Ariosophy. <laughs> Is that a real thing? I'm sure it's in there somewhere. You got the, you you had to hit the right pronunciation. Uh, all right. The the society's primary focus was on the study of Ariosophy. 
referring to the wisdom regarding the Aryans founded by occultist Guido von List and Lands von Liebenfels. These individuals' beliefs would come to inform significant aspects of the Nazi state, such as von List's belief in the power of magical ruins. Now, I don't find that so odd. I mean, if if you've been to Stonehenge or the pyramids all over the world or any place, I, I think that there's something to that. It's kind of presented as though they were, you know, insane for thinking that a certain place could have a, a certain power or a certain frequency. You know, if you're Christian out there, just think about going to holy places, right? Yeah. I mean, the um, what is it in, in France where everybody visits? Uh, Lourdes. Yeah. I think that's kind of an accepted thing that there are places that, you know, maybe hold a little bit more power than others. Just think if you were on the real Cavalry Hill, you know, where Jesus was crucified. That's a, a powerful place. But anyway, the Nazis were obsessed with finding the lost city of Atlantis, which a lot of people are. While beliefs in fringe sciences, pagan religions, and the occult spread like wildfire through Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, the myth of Atlantis had a truly profound impact that was weaved into the emerging Nazi philosophy. Historically, Atlantis first came to prominence as an island mentioned within an allegory in Plato's dialogues Timaeus and Critias. But in any case, it was written about 330 BC. In these stories, Atlantis is regarded as an enemy force that came to attack the Athenian nation-state. Athens repelled the attack, according to Plato, with the island of Atlantis eventually losing support of the gods and sinking into the ocean. While Plato didn't really say all that much about Atlantis, he pointed to the supposed location of the island as somewhere, quote, beyond the Pillars of Hercules or the Straits of Gibraltar, which is basically between Spain and uh, Morocco. So it's kind of a little passage into the Mediterranean Sea, if I'm correct geographically. In Nazi lore, the legends of Atlantis got mixed with Aryan myths, leading to a resurgence of the concept. Eric Kurlander, the professor of history at Stetson University, traced the strange movements in Germany of about 100 years ago in his book, Hitler's Monsters, A Supernatural History of the Third Reich. He contends that one of the most influential beliefs was Ariosophy, championed by Jörg Lanz von Liebenfels. This esoteric doctrine prophesized the resurgence of a lost Aryan civilization by Nordic godmen. Lanz told the myths of these godmen in a magazine called Ostara, which he claims to have given to none other than a young Adolf Hitler. In the issues, muscular Aryans defend barely-dressed blonde women from scary ape men, which was published in the Washington Post in an article by Michael Durda. Were there actually such Aryans whose lineage can be traced to the Nazi ideals? The word Aryan generally designated people of Indo-European heritage, but in Nazi thinking, the idea of the Aryan race has come to mean the supposed existence of a distinct and superior race of Germanic people. The only historical Aryans have been Indo-Iranian people who spread their languages throughout Eurasia from 4000 to 1000 BC. Germans of the early 20th century, however, were looking to root themselves in ancient traditions, pillaging whatever information they found appealing. 
Lanz's 1905 book, The Theozoology, or the Science of Sodom's Appellings and the God's Electrons, which is such a catchy title, incorporated Hindu mythology, a common feature of German theosophical texts at the time, which claimed that somewhere in India and Tibet were hidden societies of ancient Atlanteans or secret masters. And we've, I, I don't know if we've ever talked about secret masters, but it's a pretty common thing in paranormal sort of research. You have these people who appear throughout history. Mm-hmm. Count uh, Saint Germain mm-hmm. is suspected to have possibly been one of them. If any, if if our listeners are, they're probably familiar with that story. But we'll do a show that's on a guy Saint Germain. Yeah. He popped up in history a couple times. If he was a real person, he would have been like 300, 400 years old the last time he was like recorded as having had an interaction with somebody. Mm-hmm. But really interesting. Uh, this possible connection, though, to India and Tibet was a particular obsession for Heimlich Himmler, the ruthless head of the SS and Gestapo police. For the Aryan myth to be proven true, he figured the actual location and history of the Aryans needed to be uncovered. Himmler spent a decade on a semi-mystical project that had an SS unit called the Ancestral Heritage, which included archaeologists and scientists searching the globe for the lost Aryans of Atlantis. As the historian Sir Richard Evans of Cambridge University pointed out, the Nazis saw world history in terms of a struggle between races and survival of the fittest. They thought all races were inferior to the Aryans. Himmler wanted to press forward with a new religion, including sun worship and old gods. He wanted the SS to become a kind of cult, or Aryan aristocracy. Aryan aristocracy would... It'd be hard to promote in this day and age, but as like a metal band, yeah. that would not be a terrible name. That's true. We have named so many <laughs> bands on this show. Gosh, if we just could play instruments, huh? Right. Or sell the rights to our names that we come up with. Right. Yeah. You know, if somebody out there wants to send us like 40 bucks every time we you can inspire have. a new band name for them. Right. <laughs> All right. Uh, so I'll get into it. Himmler here. In 1938, Himmler's interests, which also revolves around finding the Holy Grail of Christian mythology, resulted in sending an expedition team of Nazi scientists, led by the explorer and zoologist Ernst Schaefer, to the Himalayas. All this is starting to sound a lot like uh, raiders. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The location was chosen specifically thanks to the work of Hermann Wirth, a contemporary scholar of ancient religions. Worth conjectured that there is a reason for why similar-looking symbols can be found in different parts of the world. So before we jump ahead, I just wanted to bring up the Iron Cross, right? The Nazi swastika. This is a symbol that was hijacked. Mm-hmm. It's still used in yeah, parts of Asia. Symbol, right? Yeah, it's. Uh, I think it just means peace. Like I, I don't think that there's a any kind of warlike story behind it it's 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 been hijacked the reason why we would be seeing symbols that are similar in different parts of the world is the race of the people who lived in atlantis in the atlantic ocean likely between portugal and britain the scholar proposed that survivors of sinking atlantis fled to high places vowing to avoid the sea that ruined their civilization initially that's how the descendants supposedly ended up in tibet During the Tibet expedition, Nazi scientists collected thousands of specimens while comparing locals to a list of facial features and concluded that they descended from the Aryans. Hitler and his anthropologists thought that by measuring people's heads you could tell which race they were, explained Sir Richard. (laughs) Declaring that they found out what happened to Atlantis was a boost to the myth-fueled Nazi war machine. 
becoming convinced that Tibetans were survivors of Atlantis also hardened Himmler's views on racial purity. He decided that the Aryan master race was by now much weaker due to intermixing and needed to be purified. So a couple things. First off, you can't get much more away from the sea than going to the mountains in Tibet, right? Yeah, right. It's like, yeah, uh, the sea kind of fucked us over, so we're going like 40,000 feet up. We're going to the clouds now. It's oddly absolutist logic for an advanced civilization. The mission to Tibet was not the only such endeavor by the Nazis. Similar efforts to find the Aryans were dispatched to Sweden, Scotland, France, and Iceland. One German archaeologist and eventual SS commander, Edmund Kiss, doesn't Kiss stand for Knights in Service of Satan or something like that? I think people make that up. I don't know. Is that, yeah, I was like, is that real or is it not? Because I've never seen them refer to it that way, but I've heard people say that before. Like, if you have never heard a Kiss song in your life, and you look at a picture of the band, and I gave you like 10 choices of music, you would never Mm. pick the real band. You know, I mean, they dress like they're, yeah, the knights in service of Satan. And then they're like, we want to rock and roll all night. Like, come on, dude, you're dressed in fucking black studs and have bat wings. It's, that's a great example of one of those memes that spread before the internet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like there are certain things like Marilyn Manson had a rib removed for to allow him to perform certain acts on himself. You know what I'm talking about? And then yeah. the, the kiss one, that was stuff that I heard back in like high school or maybe even before. Like Jamie from small wonder was supposed to be Billy Corrigan from smashing pumpkins. That was like kind of right when the internet started. One German archeologist and eventual SS commander, Edmund kiss promoted the idea that Bolivia's famous historical site called Tiwanaku was actually Atlantis. He believed in the elaborate world ice theory, which also had support from Adolf Hitler and other top Nazis. One of the theories... <laughs> it's being worked on by Nazis. <laughs> which Nazis? Top Nazis. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just thinking of that Indiana Jones thing. What, what, what men? Top men. All right. One of the theories postulates... Uh, that Earth at some point collided with its moon, a cataclysm that led to the destruction of Atlantis and an ice age on the planet. Trying to survive their new glacier-filled reality, ancient Atlanteans were believed to have fled to the high Andes where life could still survive. That's how they would have ended up in Bolivia. Mm-hmm. While Kiss's work found enthusiastic support in Germany, especially as he wrote statements proclaiming that The works of art and the architectural style of the prehistoric city are certainly not of Indian origin. He added that rather they were probably the creations of Nordic men who arrived in the Andean highlands as representatives of a special civilization. Nazis publicized such findings about the Nordic city of Tiwanaku in Hitler youth publications and other party newspapers. Kiss's larger Himmler-sponsored expedition to Bolivia never materialized, however, due to the start of World War II. Von Liebenfels argued that the Aryan people were intentionally bred via electricity by interstellar deities called Diazoa. And that is... <laughs> that is a, that's really hard to say well, with a straight face. Well, I mean, if you are trying to construct a myth, wouldn't you try and make it believable? You know what I mean? Like, I, I, it's so bad that 
I think he probably actually believed it because nobody would like make that up, right? Uh, not somebody yeah. who's who's not writing fiction. Anyway, it sounds great for like yeah. a movie or something. I just I can't imagine someone being like, "How do we sway the masses?" Ah, interstellar deities. We were bred mm -hmm. through electricity, but you know it worked. So go ahead. Yeah, I guess so. According to Liebenfels, gradual interbreeding had robbed the Aryans of their magical powers. In addition to embracing these occult ideas, the Thule Society... Thule? Is that what we were settled sure. on? Sure. Thule Society. This is not going to be a root and route situation like last <laughs> time. Uh, this society also believed that a proto-Aryan race lived on the island of Thule, a mythological northern island that is probably more familiar by its alternate names, Hyperborea or Atlantis. A thousand years, this is a quote by Hitler, by the way, a thousand <laughs> years before Rome was founded, the Germanic tribes had already reached a high cultural level, end quote. During the regime under Hitler, they had a fascination with the perfect race, the Aryan race, and proving that the Germans were not descendants of a Jew, Abraham, but from a much more ancient people. With this ideological view of the flawless race, the National Socialists set out to find this said perfect race. Also, the fact that Germans lacked a prehistory was another reason they set out to find Atlantis and an ancient predecessor. Utilizing Rudbeck's idea of Atlantis being found in Sweden, or the perfect emblem of the Aryan race, Hitler's National Socialists claimed that the people of Atlantis were the ancestors of the Germanic peoples. So I don't know a lot about them not having much prehistory, but I do know that Germany, like back in the... 19th century I think had like 200 individually sort of governed states yeah like smaller Tri it was almost like five very tribal yeah yeah and you know they talk about not having a prehistory but there's a lot of evidence that Germanic tribes joined forces and fought off the Romans they were never mm -hmm. ever owned by the Romans, right? That was never part of Rome. I, I'd say that's pretty magical. <laughs> yeah, I think there are like some Roman ruins that have been found in what is now Germany, but I don't think it was ever like Britain where it was like sections of it were controlled by it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and you know, if we're, we're talking about ancient Germanic tribes, we're talking about Germany Austria, France, which was Gaul at the time. So, right. But anyway, I mean, just the fact that you held off the Roman army is pretty cool. I don't know why you have to mm -hmm. make stuff up. I'm pretty impressed with that, but go ahead. <laughs> We're too badass to have a prehistory. Mm -hmm. Although they still place the continent of Atlantis in the Atlantic, they like to view the Atlanteans as Swedish which is much more an archetype of the Aryan race, you know, being tall, blonde, blue-eyed. The claim even led to the idea that Jesus was indeed not a Jew, because the ancestors of the German peoples had spread as far as Palestine, making Jesus' bloodline not Jewish. But here's what's weird. It's pagan beliefs, right? Um, and by pagan, we, we basically mean non-Abrahamic. Right. Not Christian or... Judaic or, or uh, I guess, Islamic. Yeah, yeah. And if that's the case, then 
why do they care if Jesus's bloodline is Jewish or not? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, I I don't totally understand. I've never totally understood it because I could become Jewish. I have no particular bloodline that links me to it, but there are members of my family who are Jewish. The best strategy you can have, in my opinion, to become like a leader, a political leader, something like that, is to convince people that they have a problem mm-hmm. and that you are the one with a solution. Yep. And an easy way to do that is to appeal to a majority of people and say, you are not the problem. You are great. Mm-hmm. The problem is this other group or this other factor that's holding you back. Mm-hmm. So it's all like marketing, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the whole like marketing move was that what would become the Nazi party singled out the Jews as being this particular problem. Mm-hmm. And it was easy to do because I think at the time, like it was something like 80, I don't know, like 80% of companies or banks or whatever in Germany as they were going through this massive depression and recession after World War One, like most of these banks were either controlled by or had leadership that was Jewish or, you know, members of their boards or whatever. So they're basically looking for somebody to blame for the fact that they lost the First World War. Yeah. And are going through the economic consequences of it. They're trying to blame that on somebody, so they chose this group. I I don't know. I've never understood it, and I don't really understand how you would identify visually somebody as a Jew. Mm-hmm. Unless they're wearing, like, the traditional Hasidic, yeah, right? Yeah. Isn't that the term? So yeah, when it comes to like somebody's bloodline being Jewish or not, I don't I don't particularly understand what that means. When the Nazis came to full power, a book written by a prominent geographer and Fuhrer of the German press, Albert Hermann, propelled this proclamation that the Germans were descendants of Atlantis. Himmler was Reichsfuhrer, SS, or head of the SS, which means he supervised internal and external police and security forces including the Gestapo, and was inferior in rank only to Hitler. The National Heritage Institute founded by Heinrich Himmler. Why is that hard for me to say? Leave it in. Heimlich. Heimlich Because Heimlich maneuver is what you're Uh, struggling with. (laughs) The Heinrich maneuver is uh, a little different. Quite different. (laughs) The National Heritage Institute founded by Heinrich Himmler Herman Wirth and Richard Walter DeRay, I think, in 1935 became a leading think tank in Nazi Germany. In this institute, they conducted a lot of research and expeditions on various subjects and places, such as Bayou Tapestry, expeditions to the Middle East, Tibet, Ukraine, and medical experiments. In the National Heritage Institute, discussions of Atlantis were very common and were utilized to encourage SS ideology. In this institute, they were the first to come up with Helgoland, or a sacred or holy land, which became an alternate name for Atlantis. This institute further dictated the idea that ancient Germans were not descendants of Jews, but that they came from Atlantis. Himmler took a personal interest in Atlantis and its possible descendants. Himmler was very interested in archaeology and antiquity, even bringing an archaeologist, Alexander Langsdorff, with him to meetings in Rome. 
In the Institute, they set out to search for the ancient civilization using many archaeologists. Himmler sent out these archaeologists all over the globe to search for this connection, and he also used scientists to find genetic similarities in Germans to find a connection proving a common ancestry with Atlantis. Himmler often visited the archaeologist sites to see how they were coming along with their findings. The Atlantis Thule myth was closely related to the idea of glacial cosmo cosmogony. Oh, it's just the theory that we talked about earlier that Earth had a collision with the moon. Because Atlantis being an earthly paradise and home for the Aryan race, glacial cosmogony guaranteed that Atlantis would re-emerge from the water. So yeah, it's the idea of like I guess tides and stuff, but whatever, it doesn't even matter. This paved the way to start Aryan science, which entailed that the Germans would make it their goal to racially purify an attempt to go back to Atlantis. The National Heritage Institute created propaganda for the pseudosciences and they aided in the idea and continuation of the Atlantis myth. Edmund Kiss wrote several novels on Atlantis and the subject of glacial cosmogony. In all his books, he writes how the Aryan race, or what he calls them in his book, Aziz, Aziz, I'm assuming it's not asses, Aziz, whatever, have a great kingdom and they have slaves with brown skin. Uh, also in his book, he makes a point. Well, just, just to be clear, we're not promoting this as being real. Also in his book, he makes the point that the slaves are highly impressed with this Nordic race and want to bring this back to their homeland so it will be just as remarkable. His book essentially captures all the fascist ideology, community, discipline, racially pure, nationalism, and all these other ideas and ideologies, even though I already said ideology. The Nazis wanted to find Atlantis because then they could repopulate it with the white races and have their perfect fascist society. Alfred Rosenberg created a group called the Amt Rosenberg, or AMT, Amt, I guess, yeah. that had a group of archaeologists smaller than in the National Heritage Institute. In this group, they latched onto Rosenberg's theories of history. Rosenberg believed that the pure-blooded men of Atlantis and the Jewish people were in an eternal fight. He alleged that the Germans were survivors from Atlantis that came to Germany after the destruction of the famed city. He viewed the Germans as a completely separate race. His group at Amt Rosenberg was wholly devoted to find archaeological evidence that proved this to be true. And that's part of the problem. And yeah. this is just going to be a, a quick thing, but that's not scientific at all. Mm -hmm. Even streets were designed to commemorate Atlantis as the perfect place for the Nazi Aryan race to go. I have no idea how to say that, so I'm going to say Butterscotch in Bremen, Germany has a house of Atlantis. Botcherstrab. Ludwig Roselius said... The house Atlantis is intended to make every German ask himself the question, what do you know about the proud past of your ancestors? Have you thought back to the time of Rome, Greece, and Egypt? Do you know that these three great cultures were originated by the men of the North, your forefathers? Obviously, there was not much luck on the Nazi side in any aspect as the group of Amt Rosenberg found nothing. The use of Atlantis brought about validation to the Nazis to kill the Jews because they were the imperfect ones not from Atlantis. The Nazis used this as a political tool, if nothing else, to perpetuate their idealism. Whatever. But this was uh, orchestrated. This wasn't like an accidental mistake where they came across something and said, hmm, that sounds like that could be this or, you know, that kind of support. They just made up their own shit and then 
I'm sure that they had artifacts that they just made up that they were part of Atlantis and stuff too, right? I would assume so, yeah. They would find anything they could to twist things around. Well, let's talk about Himmler's Rasputin. Despite all of its connections to the origins of Nazism, the Thule Society eventually dissolved prior to Hitler's rise to power. In fact, a great number of German occult societies were shut down. Occult-related activities and organizations were often suppressed in Nazi Germany at the behest of Heinrich Himmler's Rasputin-like personal occultist, Karl Maria Willigut. The point of this was to ensure that Willigut's own brand of occultism would be the eminent philosophy of the Nazis. Willigut had developed a religion centered on worshiping the Germanic god Ermin. According to Willigut, German culture dated back to 228,000 BC, a period of time when Earth had three suns and was populated by giants and other mythical creatures. So there's that, just because of the date. It would explain a lot, and I'm not going along with the Nazi idea, but it would explain a lot if, say, we dug miles deep, right, in the earth, mm -hmm. and then we started finding machinery, and we started finding things that we have now. Because it is possible that these pyramids and, and things like that were built by people who are now you know, covered up an ancient society that, you know, was very advanced. You know, a lot of people think aliens, but who knows? He also claimed to be descended from a line of kings from this period of time. Of course, because if you're going to invent some bullshit time, you're not going to be like, you know, my great grandpa was a blacksmith. You're going to be like, he was a ferocious warrior. It should also be noted that Willigut was a diagnosed schizophrenic. Himmler, who was an avid follower of the occult, consulted Willigut on a wide variety of issues. Using Willigut's prophecies, Himmler chose the castle Wolfsburg to serve as a base of operations for his SS troops and established a room in the castle with a crystal representing the Holy Grail. Willigut also helped in the design of the rune-covered death's head rings that the SS troops wore. Personal awards that Himmler issued himself. Now, what kind of things do you think these troops did to earn those rings? Because yeah. it ain't pretty. It ain't selling uh, SS troop cookies. So... In any case, Himmler was particularly attracted to Willigut's brand of paganism as he disliked the Judaic origins of Christianity. So it sounds like they're still kind of like, eh, Christianity's got, you know, some stuff. And they're still, like, interested in it, but I don't know. It seems like an odd fascination to have if you're trying to, you know, say it's all wrong. Like, you would just be like, right. it's all made up. After the end of World War II, Himmler believed that the, quote, old Germanic gods will be restored, end quote. Leveraging his influence and his boss's desire to see a Germanic paganism, Willigut attempted to stamp out competing philosophies to his Erminism. So, we're having an occult fight. There's at least two brands of crazy occultists that have this crazy, you know, idea, 
and they're fighting each other. You know, I, I wonder what those <laughs> right. I wonder what those fights were like. Like that's not a an Atlantean symbol, you dumbass. <laughs> yeah, but some of this stuff, they. I mean, I don't know about how the propaganda went in real life. Mm-hmm. True, true. But there's the. I don't know about the TV show, but there's the book, The Man in the High Castle, where it's kind of exploring what the U.S. would be like or certain societies would be like if the Axis powers had won. Oh, that's like part of the U.S. is controlled by um, Japan. Part of it's controlled by Germany. But there's still like infighting between Japan and Germany, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, But you see like some of this influence of like superiority and whatever else. Mm -hmm. Um, In this book is is New York still controlled by the Italians? (laughs) Yeah, probably. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, they... I, th- I really think that the, the property that did it best was probably the Wolfenstein games, the later ones. Because mm-hmm. they explore... I've talked about it before. Like, um, God, I don't remember what we were, we were... It was one of our interviews, but I talked about the Dot Yakut or whatever they were called. Like this secret society, this offshoot of the Jews. Or of, of Judaism, I guess. Mm-hmm. That was focused on coming closer to God through scientific exploration, essentially. Mm-hmm. But, like, they never intended their devices to be used. And part of what turns the tide of the war is that Germany accidentally comes across some of these devices. Mm-hmm. So they start developing, like, technology that would be advanced today. Right. Back in, like, 1944. Right. Anyway, one of the later games explores, like, the 60s. Like, Germany has won. And there's a part where you're, like, infiltrating a city, and you can hear and see, like news and stuff like that where they're talking about like oh we recently found out that this great thing about this other culture is actually our ancestors who did that not the people who lived here you know or like all the it's just there's constant propaganda and stuff that you can pick up through these games where it's the Germans saying like oh we've discovered this great way to improve everybody's lives you know we're not doing anything horrific we're not exterminating all these other people oh we're really just retaking land that was uh, traditionally ours because our ancestors came down here and helped these people a long time ago and yeah you know just finding ways to take credit for stuff yeah you know it, but the way they make it sound it's like i mean if you're just used to hearing this and that's kind of the image that you get through these games like there's a certain set of people who are just used to hearing like hey we've made these incredible technological leaps oh and these new scientific discoveries that make us look better mm-hmm. like when you start to sprinkle in lies about it it probably gets easier to take than just yeah. getting a dump of it like we're doing right now. True, true, very true. And yeah, I mean, these people were not idiots, right? I mean, I, I think people look at Nazis and, you know, we saw them on Hogan's Heroes. They're always portrayed as being just, you know, imbeciles and incapable of anything. But are you insulting my boy Schultz? <laughs> yes. but uh they i i mean this didn't happen overnight and you're right they didn't start out like hey we're gonna kill four million people are you guys cool with that you know it it, it's like a snake it just kind of slithers up slow and before you know it it's right there but yeah the, the united states will never ever 
be overtaken. There are more hunters in the United States than in all the world's armies. And a good portion of our hunters are also military or ex-military. And they may be able to get the coasts for a little while, but they're not coming inland, that's for sure. And they would eventually get driven out because everybody has guns. So, good luck. Yeah, my... my my grand, both grandpas were in World War II, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I just remember hearing these discussions. Like, yeah, the only reason after Pearl Harbor that Japan didn't try to get a foothold somewhere on the West Coast was because some specific, like, military leader was educated in the U.S. Mm-hmm. and was aware that lots of people in the U.S. have weapons and would be capable of fighting back. Yes, like there is no civilian population that would just be easy to take over here. No, and. You know, what What would be crazy is if that happened, boy, we'd come together quick, wouldn't we? We would. We'd start to see past our differences, you know? Yeah. It's sometimes something beautiful is born out of something awful. Yeah, I mean, that's... Yeah, you're right. When looking at the SS, Carl Willigut would have to be one of the most bizarre figures within Himmler's inner circle. An occultist and follower of Ermanism, both his early life and later life show a man with issues brought on by schizophrenia and alcohol abuse. Born in 1866 and brought up as a Catholic, he served during World War I on the southern and eastern fronts. After retiring in 1919 as a colonel, he took on studies of the occult, believing himself to be the bearer of a secret line of German kingship, which we talked about earlier. I don't know, what's what's scarier? Is it scarier that these people believed all this stuff? Or is it scarier to think that they knew it was bullshit and just made it all up just to, you know, advance their power? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think a combination of having the balls to make up something like this along with being persuasive enough to get people in on it to get people invested in it yeah because like if you believe in something there you have a certain conviction but it takes a a very skilled kind of liar to be able Mm -hmm. to come up with a ridiculous story like that and pass it off in a way convincing enough to like you said end up with the mass murder I agree. I think it was a combination of both. I think they kind of got themselves psyched up and egged each other on. Like, you know, I could see Hitler being like, well, dude, the spear of destiny. I mean, if I take that into battle, you know, I'll never lose. And then uh, this other guy who we're talking about, not Himmler, but the uh, Carl Willigut would be like, oh, absolutely, dude. And check this out. We're also from Atlantis. Oh, And, and then, you know, the next guy is like, we were born of electricity from the Theozos and they're like yeah and just like this <laughs> round table of Nazis just feeding on all this craziness alright using a newspaper he founded called Der Erschning Besen he went about publishing pamphlets pointing to a worldwide conspiracy of dark forces in the form of Catholics Jews and the Masonic Order it's interesting that they pointed out the Masonic Order You know, there's probably also a lot of people out there that don't realize that the Nazis hated Catholics, too. Now, obviously, 
they didn't slaughter millions of them. Uh, that was done in the Bolshevik Revolution, but not Catholics, but Christians. But anyway, yeah, I mean, they they didn't really like anybody. So, yeah. Married with two children, his wife moved to have him placed into a mental institution due to abuse and eccentric behavior. Now, think about that in the 1920s. You know, a woman being right. calling and trying to get her husband locked up. Yeah. In 1924, after being diagnosed with schizophrenia and found incompetent, he was placed into a Salzburg asylum where he remained until approximately 1927. Leaving his family in 1932, he moved from Austria to Germany and through mutual contacts is introduced to Heinrich Himmler at a conference of a group operating to strengthen German Nordic cultural cooperation and would later be taken over by Alfred Rosenberg. Willigit was inducted into the SS and given a department within the Race and Settlement Office for pre- and early history. He was promoted to Standartenführer in 1934 on a fast track to Brigadefuhrer and member of Himmler's personal staff in 1936. There's a lot of Führers in here. Yeah, no kidding. Willigit believed that the Bible was written in Germanic and in a hypothetical Erminic religion established in 12,500 BC and later ousted by Wotanism in 2500 BC. His god was Christ, and it's K R I S T, and he believed Christ was bootlegged by what we know as Christ in the form of Christianity in later years. But in the end, this man was responsible for the design of the SS Honor Ring, had a major role in the takeover and redesign of Wolfsburg Castle, which would be the epicenter of the SS ideology, and designed, or at least amended, the runic alphabet utilized during this period. In 1938, Willigit was again committed to a mental institution as an embarrassed Himmler arranged for his retirement on grounds of poor health, and Willigit's role within the SS ended in August 1939, just before the outbreak of World War II. The return of his SS honor ring and honor dagen, which I think is a dagger, were requested as per SS regulations. So one thing that's interesting to me is we talk about a lot of this just being silly you know made up history right but in germany these were the people that controlled the information so this is what their universities were teaching this is what their schools were teaching you know grade schools were teaching this and it just kind of goes to show like when you control what people think about your history that is very powerful and we have you know an education system that has its story and that's what we're brought up to believe so i don't know it's just a lot of power to be in charge of education things get stranger and stranger after the break Hey, Crypt Keepers, I want to tell you about our exciting new affiliation with Parabox. Parabox is a t-shirt subscription box 
with a twist. Each month you will receive a new paranormal soft style tee and info card about that month's theme. The shirt and card will contain clues to finding a hidden password for use on their website. You'll also find clues to next month's theme. Correct entries get entered in a raffle for free gear. The shirts are unique. They're pretty dope with designs about all your favorite paranormal stuff like Black Eyed Kids, Bigfoot, Nazca Lines, and a really cool Battle of Los Angeles tee. That's one I'm hoping I will get here sometime soon. The designs are silk screened onto a soft style tee that's super comfortable. From the moment you open your pair box, you'll be so engrossed by the t-shirt, you'll forget there's a puzzle built into it. That's right, each shirt contains a secret password. It can be in the form of codes, ciphers, riddles, numbers, images, or other hidden gems. Have fun exploring the design and putting the pieces together to figure out where to go next. Get your exclusive link in the show notes, and we get a little kickback when you sign up for the box, so you can support the show while getting cool swag with mysteries in the process. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about those wackier theories. <laughs> there are some wackier theories out there about the role that the occult played in Nazism, most of which have little evidence to support them. Uh, first, there is the dark charisma of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler was more than the frenzied madman of popular perception, argues Lawrence Rees. Here was a charismatic politician, brilliant at articulating the fears and desires of the people. Stop for a moment and imagine Adolf Hitler. Picture him in your mind. What do you see? A shouting, aggressive, unhinged character, probably. But while it's true that in his last days, Hitler was at times scarcely rational, it's not representative of the whole history. The trouble is that this image plays into a deep desire I think most of us secretly possess. We want Hitler to have been a lunatic from start to finish. We want Hitler to be mad because it makes the monstrous crimes he committed, particularly during the Second World War, easy to explain. It's simple. We can tell ourselves comfortably Hitler was a madman who somehow hypnotized millions of ordinary Germans to do things against their better judgment. But unfortunately, he wasn't a madman and he didn't hypnotize anyone. Hitler became Chancellor of Germany in January of 1933 by democratic means. A large number of the German elite which tend to be sharp, intelligent people decided to back him. Why would they support a lunatic? And the way Hitler conducted himself between 1930 and 1933 demonstrated that he was an astute politician. His calculations about where power really lay in Germany and how best to manipulate the emotions of ordinary Germans were extremely sophisticated. In addition, Hitler generated enormous and genuine support. His views very often matched those of a huge number of the German population. Something that's incomprehensible if we take at face value the portrayal of Hitler as a screaming nightmare. I like that it quotes him as a nightmare. That would be a great band name, too. The yeah, screaming nightmare. The picture of the Fuhrer is a much more complex and nuanced one than a dribbling lunatic. I don't know if dribbling lunatic would be right either. Well, we also know that near the end, you know, he was basically on crystal meth. Yeah, that's true. 
In particular, many talk of the incredible charisma that they felt Hitler possessed. Friedelin von Spahn, for example, met Hitler at a dinner for Nazi supporters in the early 1930s. As Spahn saw Hitler staring at him, he felt as if Hitler's eyes looked directly into his innermost thoughts. And when Hitler held onto the back of von Spahn's chair, Spahn felt a trembling from his fingers penetrating me. I actually felt, this is a quote, this is, this is a quote, a trembling from his fingers penetrating me. I actually felt it, but not a nervous trembling. Rather, I felt this man, this body is only the tool for implementing a big, all-powerful will here on earth. That's a miracle in my view. End quote. <laughs> As for Emil Klein, who heard Hitler speak at a beer hall in Munich in the 1920s, he believes that Hitler gave off such charisma that people believed whatever he said. What we learn from eyewitnesses like von Spahn and Klein is that charisma is first and foremost about making a connection between people. No one can be charismatic alone on a desert island. Charisma is formed in a relationship. As Sir Neville Henderson, British ambassador to Berlin in the 1930s, wrote, Hitler owed his success in the struggle for power to the fact that he was the reflection of his supporters' subconscious mind and his ability to express in words what that subconscious mind felt that it wanted. It's a view confirmed by Conrad Haydn, who heard Hitler speak many times in the 20s. His speeches are daydreams of this mass soul. The speeches given always with deep pessimism and end in overjoyed redemption, a triumphant happy ending. Often they can be refuted by reason, but they follow the far mightier logic of the subconscious, which no refutation can touch. Hitler has given the speech up to the speechless terror of the modern mass. People like von Spahn and Emil Klein were predisposed to find Hitler charismatic because they already believed in large amounts of the policies that Hitler advocated for. As we see economic events unfold in Europe today, it's scarcely possible to imagine a greater warning from history than that. There have also been rumors of an occult society based on Vril, a magical substance described in the book The Coming Race. This 19th century work of fiction describes a traveler exploring a cave who becomes lost and discovers subterranean civilization peopled by supernatural beings called the Vrilya. Now, that sounds just totally preposterous, right? Yeah. But we have an episode coming up on the sea tones of China where these miners were like lost in a collapse and they couldn't escape. And they said that they survived for this two years or whatever with beings that lived under underground. So hmm. look out for that one. Yeah. In the novel, these beings made use of a fluid called Vril, which they could telepathically manipulate to heal, destroy, or change their surroundings. Some contend that Hitler and the Thule Society worked together to found a secret totalitarian global government referred to as the New World Order. Hmm. Who else has said that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Others, just so you guys know, uh, Bush and Biden have both said that. Because I don't want to leave that out there. Others claim that infamous occultist Aleister Crowley, or Crowley, however you want to say it, had made contact with Hitler or that Hitler had been trained in mind control techniques to control the crowds of Germans he addressed during his speeches. I think it would be easier to understand the charisma of his speeches if they weren't in German. 
And I know mm. that sounds stupid because people are going to be like, well, he's German. You have to get it in English. I just mean that uh, German is such a harsh language. I mean, everything yeah. sounds awful. Even, you know, you could be like singing a lullaby and it would scare the shit out of the baby. So I don't know if if we could picture a charismatic speaker speaking in our language or more romantic language french spanish whatever i think it would be easier for me to buy into but i see his speeches and it just i mean he looks like he's just having convulsions yeah i'm thinking about like the old school crooners like sinatra and sam and, and uh, davis like yeah, and like Yves Montand from France or whatever. Like, if they had been trying to speak German, what would they have sounded like trying yeah. to do some of their songs? Absolutely. All right, so you want to get into the Spear of Destiny? Tell us about the Spear of Destiny. Still, others claim that Hitler possessed the Spear of Destiny. This is the spear that pierced Christ when he was crucified and is claimed to magically guarantee its wielder victory in all their exploits, with the caveat that if they lose the lance, they will die. The cult legend states that whoever claims his spear and understands its occult significance holds the destiny of the world in his hands. According to Houston Stuart Chamberlain, British-born propagandist for anti-Semitism in the German philosophy of an Aryan master race, it's a title. This spear was claimed by Constantine the Great, Justinian, Charles Martel, Charlemagne, and various German emperors, all men of destiny. Before World War II, that sound weird to you? That sounded weird to me. Singing the uh, Wild West song by Will Smith. <laughs> World War II. World War II. You hear Before World War II, the Spear of Destiny was exhibited in the Hofburg Museum in Vienna. It attracted the attention of the young Adolf Hitler, who linked it with legends of the Holy Grail and made his own plans to be a man of destiny. The spear held a special fascination for Hitler and his associates in the hothouse atmosphere of occultism and evil philosophies that gave rise to the Nazi plan for world domination. In 1935, Heinrich Himmler had a replica of the spear made and kept it in his private room. Three years later, Hitler led his troops into Austria, the first stage of his plan for world conquest. One of his first acts was to remove the Spear of Destiny from the Hofburg Museum. The spear was buried beneath the Nuremberg Fortress where it was discovered on the day that Hitler allegedly shot himself in the Berlin bunker on April 30th, 1945. It was recovered together with other treasures of the Imperial collection. On January 6th, 1946, these treasures were returned to the authorities at Vienna and the spear was reinstated in the Hofburg Museum. The manner in which it influenced Hitler was integral to the occult philosophy that permeated the upper echelons of the Nazi movement and affected the actual events of World War II. There are a number of successively stranger and stranger theories about the Nazis and their connection with the occult, a great deal of which has no basis in reality. But developing fantastical magical theories about how the Nazis came about and how they succeeded in sowing so much horror and destruction is comforting. It is what it is. I think we kind of did our final thoughts as we went along. Do you have anything yeah. that you want to wrap it up with? Anything Nazi-related is always interesting because it's a relatively small group of people that you think would have an ideology that would not spread. Right. Who almost took over the world. And it's weird and scary. <laughs> and it's like endlessly fascinating because of that. It is. Don't forget to share this podcast on your favorite social media and check out the Cryptique Facebook page. 
click the link in the show notes to check out the Parabox t-shirt mystery box. Check out Movie Hell and send us case suggestions at crypticpodcast at gmail.com. We'll find out if Hitler was possessed in the after party. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. Welcome to the after party. Perhaps the most extreme and in a way comforting example would be the idea that Hitler was possessed by a demon. A theory based mainly off of a passage Hitler underlined in a copy of a book titled Magic, History, Theory, and Practice. Reading, he who does not carry demonic seeds within him will never give birth to a new world. We'll read that excerpt from The Young Hitler I Knew by August Kubizak. Yeah, chapter 10, in the hour it began. It was the most impressive hour I ever lived through with my friend. So unforgettable is it that even the most trivial things, the clothes Adolf wore that evening, the weather, are still present in my mind as though the experience were exempt from the passing of time. Adolf stood outside my house in his black overcoat, his dark hat pulled down over his face. It was a cold, unpleasant November evening. He waved to me impatiently. I was just cleaning myself up from the workshop and getting ready to go to the theater. Rienzi was being given that night. We had never seen this Wagner opera and looked forward to it with great excitement. In order to secure the pillars in the promenade, we had to be early. Adolf whistled to hurry me up. Now we were in the theater, burning with enthusiasm and living breathlessly through Rienzi's rise to be the tribune of the people of Rome and his subsequent downfall. When at last it was over, it was past midnight. With my friend, his hands thrust into his coat pockets, silent and withdrawn, we strode through the streets and out of the city. Usually, after an artistic experience that had moved him, he would start talking straight away, sharply criticizing the performance. But after Rienzi, he remained quiet a long while. This surprised me, and I asked him what he thought of it. He threw me a strange, almost hostile glance. Shut up, he said brusquely. The cold, damp mist lay oppressively over the narrow streets. Our solitary steps resounded on the pavement. Adolf took the road that led up to the Freinberg. Without speaking a word, he strode forward. He looked almost sinister and paler than ever. His turned-up coat collar increased that impression. I wanted to ask him, where are you going? But his pallid face looked so forbidding that I suppressed the question. As if propelled by an invisible force, Adolf climbed up to the top of the Freinberg, and only now did I realize that we were no longer in solitude and darkness, for the stars shone brilliantly above us. Adolf stood in front of me, and now he gripped both my hands and held them tight. He had never made such a gesture before. I felt from the grasp of his hands how deeply moved he was. His eyes were feverish with excitement. The words did not come smoothly from his mouth as they usually did, but rather erupted, hoarse and raucous. From his voice, I could tell even more how much this experience had shaken him. Gradually, his speech loosened, and the words flowed more freely. Never before and never again has Adolf Hitler spoken as he did in that hour, as we stood there alone under the stars, as though we were the only creatures in the world. I cannot repeat every word that my friend uttered. I was struck by something strange, which I had never noticed before, even when he had talked to me in moments of the greatest excitement. It was as if another being spoke out of his body and moved him as much as it did me. It wasn't at all a case of a speaker being carried away by his own words. On the contrary, I felt as though he himself listened with astonishment and emotion to what burst forth from him with elementary force. I will not attempt to interpret this phenomenon, but it was a state of complete ecstasy and rapture in which he transferred the character of Rienzi 
without even mentioning him as a model or example with visionary power to the plane of his own ambitions. But it was more than a cheap adaptation. Indeed, the impact of the opera was rather a sheer external impulse which compelled him to speak. Like floodwaters breaking their dikes, his words burst forth from him. He conjured up in grandiose, inspiring pictures of his own future and that of his people. Hitherto, I had been convinced that my friend wanted to become an artist, a painter, or perhaps an architect. Now this was no longer the case. Now he aspired to something higher, which I could not yet fully grasp. It rather surprised me, as I thought that the vocation of the artist was for him the highest, most desirable goal. But now he was talking of a mandate which one day he would receive from the people, to lead them out of servitude into the heights of freedom. It was an unknown youth who spoke to me in that strange hour. He spoke of a special mission which one day would be entrusted to him, and I, his only listener, could hardly understand what he meant. Many years had to pass before I realized the significance of this enraptured hour for my friend. His words were followed by silence when in the town the clock struck three. We parted in front of my house. Adolf shook hands with me and I was astonished to see that he did not go in the direction of his home, but turned again towards the mountains. Where are you going now? I asked him, surprised. He replied briefly, I want to be alone. In the following weeks and months, he never again mentioned this hour on the Freienberg. At first, it struck me as odd, and I could find no explanation for his strange behavior, for I could not believe that he had forgotten it altogether. Indeed, he never did forget it, as I discovered 33 years later, but he kept silent about it because he wanted to keep that hour entirely to himself. That I could understand, and I respected his silence. After all, it was his hour, not mine. I had played only the modest role of a sympathetic friend. In 1939, shortly before the war broke out, when I for the first cited Beirut as the guest of the Reich Chancellor, I thought I would please my host by reminding him of that nocturnal hour on the Freinberg. So I told Adolf Hitler what I remembered of it, assuming that the enormous multitude of impressions and events which had filled these past decades would have pushed into the background the experience of a 17-year-old youth. But after a few words, I sensed that he vividly recalled that hour and had retained all its details in his memory. He was visibly pleased that my account confirmed his own recollections. I was also present when Adolf Hitler retold the sequence to the performance of Rienzi and Linz to Frau Wagner, at whose home we were both guests. Thus, my own memory was doubly confirmed. The words with which Hitler concluded his story to Frau Wagner are also unforgettable for me. He said solemnly, in that hour, it began. Pretty powerful. Yeah. Quite a story. Well, what did the Vatican's exorcist think? Adolf Hitler and Russian leader Stalin were possessed by the devil, the Vatican's chief exorcist has claimed. So we are going back in time before our episode on the Vatican's exorcist when uh, Father Gabriel Amorth was still alive. He's since deceased, but this is, you know, what he wrote about Hitler and Stalin. Father Gabriel Amorth, who was Pope Benedict XVI's caster out of demons, made his comments during an interview with Vatican Radio. Father Amorth said, quote, of course the devil exists, and he can not only possess a single person, but also groups and entire populations. 
I am convinced that the Nazis were all possessed. All you have to do is think about what Hitler and Stalin did. Almost certainly they were possessed by the devil. You can tell by their behavior and their actions from the horrors they committed and the atrocities that were committed on their orders. That's why we need to defend society from demons. So that was all a quote from Father Gabriel Lamarth. According to secret Vatican documents recently released, wartime pontiff Pope Pius XII attempted a quote, long distance exorcism of Hitler, which failed to have any effect. Surprise, surprise. Father Amorth said, quote, it's very rare that praying and attempting to carry out an exorcism from distance works. I have no doubt that Hitler was possessed, and so it does not surprise me that Pope Pius tried a long distance exorcism. So what do you think? Possessed or not possessed? I don't know. If this account is true and he like saw a play that inspired him, that's remarkable mm -hmm. remarkable that somebody who's 17 like knows what they want to do with their life you know that they want to lead their people and i can see why the guy telling the story the one who was hitler's friend wasn't alarmed by it yeah because he's not saying like oh i want to kill a whole lot of people like right. millions and millions of people he's saying like i want to or not even i want to he's saying i will be called upon mm-hmm to, to do positive lead my, yeah to lead my people out of servitude or whatever but yeah i don't know i don't think he i don't think he was possessed no i don't either so you don't think that it was the music that possessed him what do you mean oh from the the play yeah that would be insane no. right like yeah you know we talked on sound bombing about people using tones and frequencies and stuff like that you know for everything from control to you know helping people relax to causing you know internal damage to your organs to think that maybe somebody was doing that you know way back then i there are certain people who seem to have a drive like that though yeah you know like uh steve jobs mm-hmm he what was his first Jobs he was uh he was well i'm just saying in terms of like somebody who can like so relentlessly drive towards a goal mm -hmm. and win people over to their side and like you know the reality distortion field that they talk about with jobs that he could just like deny reality and get people to go along with him because mm -hmm. his initial job he worked as uh like a programmer for atari i think i didn't know that. i'm pretty sure that's what it was but he you know, he had some ability, but it was really other people that he got to join him who were able to do a lot of that technical work that made Apple what it was, mm -hmm. you know, in the 90s and into the 2000s. It's bizarre to think about that he was like so single mindedly focused on it from the age of like 20 yeah. on the same way. You know, we're hearing that Hitler was focused on this idea from the time that he was 17. And I'm sure there are a lot of people who start businesses or become politicians or whatever. It's just this is a particularly like horrible outcome yeah. <laughs> of one of these things. You know, it's not it's somebody who had the intention to do something like this. Although I don't know how much of that is really true. Just because what I had read was that Hitler was in the trenches in the Great War 
and that was what kind of changed his political views mm -hmm. and you know kind of inspired him to get into it himself yeah and it does at least from some accounts seem like he got into it with good intentions you know it's just that you have you you have to create a boogeyman you have to have a straw man to go after and he chose a group and he yeah i mean what happened happened it's easy for us to call these atrocities out because you know it was the first time that we'd actually seen things on film really from wars you know in a, in a different way it, it kind of brought about almost a uh, a, a genre you know of war films and all you have to do is turn on the history channel and you will definitely be watching something about world war ii i think uh, there are certain people who are just stronger in will than most and this is a case of somebody with that incredibly strong will who used it for the worst possible ends yeah god there there was an episode of uh angel do you remember Angel, the spinoff from Buffy? Yeah, I I'm do. pretty sure it was Angel. There, there's an episode, if I'm remembering it right, where they find this kid, and they can tell that there's like a demon in him. Okay. And so they exercise the demon, and the demon comes out, and he's like, "Oh my God, thank you so much." Mm -hmm. Like they're like, "Get out of that kid, leave that kid alone," because the kid's like trying to kill people, and he's like evil. Right. And they get this demon out of him and the demon's like thank you like i tried to you know i tried to mess with this like i tried to possess this kid but i got trapped like that kid is just pure darkness like the kid was mm -hmm. darker and worse the than the demon gotcha yeah like it was the kid all along and i definitely believe that there are people who are more driven and more evil or more at least eventually corrupt than a demon that would possess them anyway i'm not saying that sure that you know my education is an episode of angel from like 25 years ago but <laughs> but you know i mean people i i think in general people are good yeah but i think it's totally possible for experiences like maybe going through something during the great war hmm. to warp your perspective to the point where you become a monster yeah yeah, and I mean, there's always the possibility that, you know, through his occult practices and his obsession with the occult, that he did open up a gateway. I mean, you you telling me Hitler never used a, an Ouija board? Right. He probably wrote his speeches from a German Ouija board. <laughs> well, that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique. Tell them what they need to know. Like, subscribe, follow us on Facebook and other social medias. But more importantly, we really would be tremendously grateful if you would share our show with your friends, families, maybe even enemies on Facebook and through whatever other messaging means you have available to you. We love you guys. Good evening, Crypt Keepers.